G'day and welcome to the Reset Podcast. Today we're going to do the second half of our book, Stress Teflon. In the first part, we learned how our stress system works. And in this part, we're going to learn how to use that system to our advantage. And we're going to do that by looking at the safety of a tribe, the pride from contribution and honest self-awareness. I hope you enjoy becoming Stress Teflon. Section two, what you need to become stress Teflon. Chapter seven, the Greeks worked it out years ago. Aristotle said, happiness depends upon ourselves. What is eudaimonia really? The Greek philosopher Epicurus lived in about 300 BC. He was born in a beautiful Greek island and he spent much of his youth learning the traditional philosophy of the Greek masters. He found, however, that much of what he was learning he either didn't particularly agree with or found uninteresting or irrelevant. By the time he was in his 20s, he decided to go it alone. Forget about what he'd been taught and develop his own philosophy. Whilst Greek philosophy tackled lofty issues like the meaning of life and the nature of the universe, Epicurus decided to apply the tools of philosophy to a simpler issue of how to be happy in life. He concluded that pleasure was the goal of a happy life, and he set up a school to both live and teach the new ideas. Almost immediately, the real philosophers came to associate Epicurus, his philosophy, and his school with self-indulgence and extravagance. Rumours started to circulate that life at the garden, the name of his living school, was all feasts, drunkenness, and casual sex. And it's those associations with the word Epicurean that persists even today. But life at the garden was less like a Las Vegas strip and more like a hippie commune. You see, whilst people tend to jump to certain conclusions as soon as the word pleasure is mentioned, Epicurus applied rational analysis, which is a great tool of philosophy, to first determine what is it that makes life pleasurable before jumping into the pursuit of pleasure. The answer to to this turned out to be not the usual assumptions of a big house, gourmet food and lots of stuff. Epicurus decided that to enjoy a happy life filled with pleasure, you need really only require three things beyond your basic survival needs, friendship, freedom, and thought. Friendship, freedom, and thought, it sounds like Epicurus knew how to objectively flourish. These three things look a lot like what we're talking about. Friendship is pretty straightforward. It's about social bonds. You need people you care about and people who care about you. You need people who respect you for whom you are and couldn't care less what kind of car you drive. People you feel close to and with whom you can share your experiences. Freedom is about pride. Epicurus and his friends didn't want to be trapped in jobs or lifestyles doing things they had to do. Um, It's not that they didn't want to work. It's just they wanted to spend their time doing things that were meaningful to them things that made them feel proud rather than things that were either meaningless or worse, not very nice, just to earn the money to pay for that house they didn't really need. Thought is about using your rational new brain to manage the fears and anxieties that the emotional old brain can't help throwing at you. Now, it should be noted that Epicurus wasn't saying that you can't have all the other stuff too and be happy. The point is that friendship, freedom and thought are paramount. If nothing gets in the way of those, 
then everything should be fine. If you have friendship, freedom and thought, you will be happy. If you also have a nice house, enjoy fun holidays and appreciate good food, then well done you. It's just that we naturally seem to focus on the latter and give the happiness of the former not much thought. The Greeks do rock. So our goal here is to objectively flourish, to embrace the good stress and let the bad stress simply slide off. The under, by understanding Kronk, stealing some ideas from ancient Greece and adding a modern twist, we have the foundations of stress Teflon, the security of a tribe, pride from contribution and honest self-awareness. And if you can imagine a diagram with three interlocking circles, stress Teflon and eudaimonia are in the middle of that. You need the security of a tribe, the pride from contributing and honest self-awareness. Chapter 8. It's a tribal thing. The only way to have a true friend is to be one. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Foundation 1. The security of a tribe. To feel safe, we must connect with people and maintain and create the bonds that will strengthen our tribe. We forget it sometimes, but we're pack animals. Like Kronk, we need to belong because if we don't, if we're rejected by our tribe, our chances of survival drop dramatically. And what's more stressful than a looming painful death? Humans are communal by nature. We need the support of our tribe or pack to feel safe, loved and purposeful. And we need to contribute in a way that makes us feel good about being ourselves. We're not solitary creatures like, say, a wolverine, which prefers a life alone. Maybe that's why Wolverine is such a miserable character out of the comic book land. Let's be honest, aside from Hugh Jackman's six-pack and the cool claws, no one wants to be Wolverine. We need a pack, and we need to feel that we are happily belonging to it. The response I had to the news of Ragsy's diagnosis, that powerful inclination to help people in need, particularly when they're close to us, is born from our innate dedication to tribalism. Working together as a tribe has made us humans what we are today. It's how we establish our sense of belonging and our personal safety. Our collective set of knowledge communicated from person to person, generation to generation, is how we learn, innovate and adapt at such an accelerated rate. Without a tribe, humans by nature are prone to feeling lonely, fearful and generally incomplete. Once we've established our need to be part of a tribe, it almost consumes us, becoming the most important priority in nearly everything we do. The pain of social rejection. In the early 2000s, scientists Naomi Eisenberger and Matthew Lieberman at the University of California in LA and Kipling Williams at Purdue University found that social rejection activates many of the same brain regions involved in physical pain. Pain, in case you don't know, is designed to stop us from doing something that will harm you. Without pain, you might leave your hand on an oven hot plate or walk around on a broken leg. Pain stops you from doing things that aren't beneficial. It sounds like evolution 101, right? The scientists wanted to look at the relationship between social rejection and pain. They set up a game called Cyberball in which three online players throw a virtual ball to each other. They place the subject in an fMRI machine that can map activity inside the brain. As the game continued, the three players threw the balls to each other. Eventually, two of them ended up throwing it just between themselves and leaving the other one left out. 
The rejected person's fMRI immediately showed increased activity in the pain center of the brain. This was a game of no importance. It was an experiment that involved throwing a virtual ball. Yet the brain's pain centers lit up like a Christmas tree when the subject was left out. Pain is a form of stress, and being excluded increased stress tenfold. In Kronk's time, being cast out of your tribe was a death sentence. Everything wanted to kill you back then, and we needed people around us to be safe. It kind of makes sense that social rejection will stimulate the pain centers in the brain to stop us doing the things that may cause rejection. In short, evolution stops you from being an asshole and getting kicked out of your tribe. If it hurts, you stop doing it. I'm not sure if your conscience is a social thing or an evolutionary thing, but it might explain why you feel guilty if you do something you know is wrong, no matter how small, the knot in your stomach that occurs if you lie to a friend about why you can't come to her daughter's ballet recital, for instance, or the shame you feel for cheating at a game or for eating all that ice cream. Could it be that we've evolved to be nice to ensure we avoid the pain of being kicked out of the tribe? Think of it another way. Your narcissistic asshole boss who has no social skills and only cares about himself just isn't as involved with you. Sarah's story. Teenage girls are the queens of exclusion. All 14-year-old girls know they have the power to hurt by excluding others. Sarah is your average 14-year-old girl. She's fun, she loves sports, she's healthy, does well at school, and she tries really hard to please people. She loves her parents and has lots of great friends and has a group of five or six friends that she's really tight with. But lately, she's been going through a stage that all 14-year-olds go through as they mature. All of a sudden, she started getting really tired all the time and she stays in bed far more than she used to. She doesn't really want to talk to her parents and she's not the same motivated kid she once was. As Sarah's attitude and health changed so dramatically, her parents wondered what the hell had happened to this kid. Is this normal or has something happened? It turns out something has happened. A rumour has been going around school that Sarah sent a boy on Facebook a nude picture of herself and all her friends have ostracised her because of it. Sarah no longer feels that she is part of a tribe and it has made her stress levels increase, which has made her sick. What we know now is that part of our brain that lights up when we get kicked out of a tribe is exactly the same part that lights up if we break a leg. Why? Well, first, the tribal reason. In Kronk's time, if you got kicked out of your group, you were fucked. You were not going to find food easily, if at all. Even if you did, you would likely be eaten by a predator before long because you had no one to protect you. Tribalism or community is biologically ingrained in us, so much so that even today, we have a strong urge to do things that make us stay part of the tribe. We have to look after people, adhere to customs and rules, and basically just not be an arsehole. If you're an arsehole, you're going to get kicked out of your tribe, right? And if you got kicked out of your tribe in 10,000 BC, you were fucked. Everything our brain does is designed to protect us. If you break your leg, it hurts when you step on that leg, so you don't step on your leg. And the exact same part of your brain that stops you stepping on your broken leg is the same part that will fire up if you get kicked out of your social group. In Kronk's time, it was 100% about survival. In Sarah's time, it's 100% about feeling she belongs in a group because if she doesn't, the stress is going to be debilitating, just like in Cyberball. 
Tribes like Kronks are almost unrecognisable compared to tribes of today. The tribal instincts around them, however, are still the same. We certainly have more tribes to choose from today, and a kind of tribal tier system has developed because of it. Chances are that if you've ever spent time abroad, you've met people displaying their support for your local sports team, university, business, and so on. Or maybe you caught their accent or overheard their conversations and determined that you shared a common place of origin. You might have even struck up a curious conversation with them to find out for sure. That conversation usually goes something along the lines of this. Hey, insert your team name. Are you from wherever I'm from? If they are from your city or region, you're usually off to the races on a tribal breakdown, ticking off the mental checklist intended to see how closely connected the two of you are. You know, what part of the city are you from? What school did you go to? What's your, what's your surname? And they all, all of these conversations are designed to find out whether that person, how close they are to being in our tribe. What are we doing when we do this? What's the point of breaking down the degrees of relation to a stranger? It's an instinctual line of questioning to help us feel connected to someone when we're feeling out of place or alone. We have a primal need to assemble a tribe when we feel threatened, and the closer we feel to someone from supporting the same sports team to being a blood relative, the safer we feel including them. That type of tribal checklist affects us all sorts of ways that you might not expect. Everything from whom we marry to where we live to our well-being and even the physical shape of our brain. That's right, even your brain size is influenced by what researchers call the sizing up effect. In 2016, Cardiff University study found that humans have evolved a disproportionately large brain as a result of sizing each other up in large cooperative social groups. We desperately want to find our tribe in an increasingly interconnected world of tribes, and once we do, we instinctively take great pride in caring for it. Why? I I think it links back to eudaimonia. Caring about your tribe and showing that you care are, Aristotle believed, primal instincts for all of us. By committing ourselves to activity in accordance with virtue, the Greek philosopher believed that we would reach a state of personal bliss, which we are all instinctively trying to find. What defines an activity in accordance with virtue? Well, scholars go back and forth on defining it exactly, as what is right for one person may not be right for another. But at its core is the idea that we have an innate potential to live a life filled with happiness and well-being simply by doing what is morally right, which ultimately helps our tribe flourish. And if our tribe flourishes, so do we. Think of it another way. Your parents, teachers or coaches likely warned you that if you don't perform well at school, at work or at a particular sport, you will not succeed. What we're telling kids underneath that all is that you have to be successful in the eyes of the tribe or else life is going to be terrible. Failure is stressful. Failing simply means that a person isn't as good as the rest of the tribe and should be banished in some way or another because of it. For example, kicked off the team, fired from a job, held back at school, which can be stress factor warp 10. We may think of these warnings as just fairly innocuous comments, but they carry a long mentality well into adulthood. You have to work hard. You have to get this. You have to do that. You have to dress a certain way, otherwise the kids at school are going to bully you. 
The desire to conform all comes back to our primal need to survive and avoid the stress of exclusion. We may also look at how nice the lives of celebrities or the super wealthy look from the outside with their possessions, looks and talents that all the tribe admires and feel that without those things, we matter less to the tribe or perhaps don't belong at all. The author and lecturer, Alain Dubaton, refers to our fear of failure as more a fear of being ostracized. He calls this phenomenon of comparing ourselves to the most admired members of the tribe status anxiety, a condition affecting members of tribes that ascribe respect and love according to social hierarchy. Status anxiety helps fuel the drive to do better at work, at school, in the game, at home, and in the community, and so on. Because it, because it helps us feel more certain about our position in the world. Our status anxiety is really a symptom of our fear of not fitting in with the tribe more than anything else. After all, if we don't fit in with the tribe, our primal instincts tells us that our survival is in jeopardy. But before you bend over backwards trying to gain the acceptance of a particular tribe, you should really consider what the tribe does to make you happy. Does it really matter if you haven't got the biggest house, the nicest car, or the latest cell phone? Is it even a tribe you really want to be part of? In Kronk's case, he got just as much in return from his tribes for his efforts to contribute to it. Because he was an excellent hunter, he would lead the charge, and he and his tribe mates would go out hunting. He killed a tiger, a feat held in high esteem to his tribe, and he regularly brought home the biggest chunks of meat to feed his tribe. And for his accomplishments, Kronk was regarded as the top dog, the alpha of the pack. He got the best pieces of meat for his kills, the coziest bed perhaps, and the best mate, and the best hunting tools and more. Later on, when he couldn't hunt as well as he had in his younger days, he contributed to the tribe by spending time teaching the children and building up other people. That was his way of providing for the tribe he loved and for helping ensure its survival. Kronk was gaining plenty in return, of course, the safety of being part of a community and the pride of being well-respected by his peers. Before vast empires reigned, before the glow of television came flashing across every living room and before the dawn of the digital society, tribes like Kronk's were smaller, tighter and less concerned with the individual. A tribe like Kronk's might have totaled 50 to 100 members. Now, as technology continues to connect us, for better or worse, our tribe is seemingly infinite. Take Facebook, for example. The social media site intends to connect you with your friends, your tribe. Keeping in mind that the average Facebook user when we wrote this had 338 friends and a steady stream of insights into the lives of billions of others around the world. The average person's virtual tribe is much larger than our primal instincts are accustomed to. Is it possible to really have 338 friends and be invested in their lives and speak and visit them on a regular basis? No. In fact, the evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar spent more than a decade researching the capacity for human relationships and determined that on average, we cannot maintain more than 150 relationships. From military units to communes to corporations, once a group reaches 150 members, it usually splits apart in some way. Some fracture into smaller groups, some open additional offices elsewhere, but stay unified and some disband altogether. Tribes within tribes. 
Modern tribes can take many forms too. Take my mate Kevin, for example, who has found his tribe in a way that isn't exactly virtual but isn't quite real either. Kevin and I have known each other for more than 30 years, and by sheer serendipity, he managed to marry one of my best friends. But there's something you have to understand about Kev. He loves Star Wars. I don't mean he likes the movies a lot. He loves everything about them. He loves Star Trek. Yeah, but don't confuse the two. It really pisses them off. But it's Star Wars, and particularly the dark side, where Kevin truly found his tribe. You see, Kev is a Sith Lord. For six years, he has been the commanding officer of the Queensland 101st Legion. If you are like me and may not know a lot about Star Wars, I saw the first one in 1977 and punished myself by watching Jar Jar Binks when one of the movies featured him came out first. I don't remember which one it was. Obviously, I'm not a big Star Wars fan, despite people constantly telling me, Luke, I am your father. Apparently, my father, and yours too, is Darth Vader, and in the 501st Legion, Kev is Darth Vader. Kev is a bit over six feet tall, and in his Darth Vader costume, he looks imposing. His black outfit is complete with big boots and a heavy breastplate that contains a voice-altering box that makes any words Kev utters sound exactly like James Earl Jones, the voice of Vader in the movies. It's pretty impressive. As the Sith Lord, Kev organised a group of 150 Star Wars fans who do some amazing work in the community. They visit children's hospitals, they raise money for great causes like the Starlight Foundation, and they bring a lot of joy to millions of Star Wars fans. When Vader and his stormtroopers enter a hospital, the kids forget their illnesses and they are transported into a galaxy far, far away. It feels great to walk into a hospital and feel like you're, you've made someone's day, Kev explained, when, when talking about his work with the 501st. It takes up a lot of time and it's easy to spend a lot of money on this hobby, but it's great to have a hobby you love and it also does a huge amount of good. Kev said. His Vader costume alone costs more than $7,000. It has the voice box, ice pockets, because it's particularly hot in Queensland, and has an awesome helmet. Couple this with the cost of travel to con- conferences like Comic-Con and Supernova, and you can see just how committed he and his group are to the dark side. What draws people to the 501st Legion? According to Kev, it's a sense of belonging and a desire to immerse himself in another world that allows him to park the demands of modern life for a while. Putting on a stormtrooper outfit is quite liberating for him. He he has anonymity, a sense of belonging, and the pride that comes along with doing things for charity. The 501st Legion has brought together over 11,000 people for a common love and because of it has has facilitated marriages and provided a place where people feel safe. Safety and acceptance are the key to any tribe. That sense of safety has seen gay stormtroopers come out to members of the 501st before they've even told their families. Being gay is nowhere near as bad as being a Jedi, one gay stormtrooper joked. Having a common love is a great way to build a tribe, whether it's Star Wars, croquet, or stamp collecting. A common love is a way to gain acceptance, just as it was in Kronk's time. The need to belong is a really strong human survival tool. Having that sense of belonging will make you more resistant and decrease harmful stress. Chapter 9. Contribution and the need to feel valued. 
Franklin D. Roosevelt said, happiness lies in the joy of achievement and the thrill of creative effort. Foundation two, pride from contribution. To feel proud of ourselves, we must contribute to the world and have meaning in our life. Kronk felt an innate need to contribute to his tribe. The warm, fuzzy feeling of pride that went along with it made him and his mates feel valued and kept their tribe together. In other words, staying together kept them feeling safe and happy. Not much has changed. We still need to contribute and to feel good and have well-being. Genuine self-confidence is essential for eudaimonia and a big part of making ourselves stress Teflon. Remember that the biggest cause of toxic stress is the fear you can't handle a given situation. Clear memories of occasions when you've handled a difficult situation are where self-confidence is born. I have been through something like this before and I sorted it out then, I can sort it out now. That's how you get eudaimonia. Objective flourishing and the belief in yourself that comes from actions, from contributing. True belief is born from actions and achieving something. Do something, help someone, contribute, be part of your tribe. Pride and contribution are linked to the production of serotonin that we discussed in Chapter 5. If you look at the diagram with our three circles, you can see what happens when we don't have pride from inside. Being safe and self-aware are important needs, but without doing something positive, you never quite obtain eudaimonia. To get happiness and to objectively flourish, you need to do something. You need to feel pride in yourself, and that pride comes from your actions, not your words or your thoughts. What happens if you lack pride from inside? Because serotonin is a mood balancer, those with a chronic deficiency typically experience intense bouts of sadness and depression. The more serotonin there is in the system, the more pride you feel in yourself. A large percentage of people with depression get an enormous amount of benefit from taking medication to help them feel happier. Most of these commonly prescribed antidepressants are SSRIs, and I'm going to talk about them in this brain box. SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, are the most commonly prescribed type of antidepressants. SSRIs ease depression by increasing levels of serotonin in the brain. Serotonin is one of the chemical messages or neurotransmitters that carry signals between brain cells. SSRIs block the reabsorption or reuptake of serotonin in the brain, making more serotonin available for longer periods. SSRIs are called selective because they seem to primarily affect serotonin and not the other neurotransmitters. SSRIs may be given to treat conditions other than depression, such as anxiety disorders. Common branded SSRIs are Prozac, Zoloft, and Lexapro. Several years ago, I was having a regular checkup with my doctor and happened to mention that I was feeling a bit flat. Not quite myself. Business was fantastic. My wife and daughter were both great, but I wasn't quite feeling my usual upbeat, happy self. I live in Lukeland, and in Lukeland, everything's nice, everything's happy, and everything's great. And for a little while there, I wasn't quite feeling as good as I normally do. My doctor quickly reached for the prescription pad and wrote out a script for Lexapro. I trust doctors and knew he had my best interests at heart. I got the pills and started taking them. Within a week or two, I felt I had a little bit more energy and was a bit more excited about doing the things I do. 
Just to be safe, though, I decided to do some Google doctoring, which is usually not a good idea, to find out a bit more about these tablets. This was three or four years ago, and at the time, I'd never heard of serotonin. It's great stuff, I learned. Serotonin feels wonderful, and these tablets were making me feel like my usual self. But something was nagging at the back of my my mind. I'm the eternal optimist. Friends say I live in Lukeland, a place where everything is nice, things always turn out for the best, and everyone does the right thing. If I live in Lukeland, why would I need to take an antidepressant? I decided with the help of my doctor to wean myself off the tablets, I'd only been taking them for a few weeks, and concentrate on doing things that make more serotonin. I started looking at reasons to be grateful, which led me to help more people at work and to get better at their jobs. You, you might say that I started putting my heart and soul into things again. You have to care and you have to show you care to produce serotonin. When you do that, you will produce more serotonin and the pride from inside will help you feel good about being you, an essential part of stress teflon. Depression affects 350 million people worldwide. In the US in 2012, one in every 12 young, young people between the ages of 18 and 22 reported a major depressive episode in the previous year. Depression would be awful. I'm not a doctor, but you have to wonder how many people like me have been wrongly prescribed these tablets by well-meaning general practitioners. Sadness and grief are normal human emotions. We all have those feelings from time to time, but they usually go away within a few days. Major depression is something more. It's a period, a period of overwhelming sadness. It involves loss of interest in things that used to bring pleasure, and those feelings are usually accompanied by emotional and physical symptoms. If it can be sold with, by $5,000 or a new boyfriend, it's not depression. That quote was from Ned Shorter, a professor in medicine at Toronto University. Being told you have depression could well be a self-fulfilling prophecy, sending your new brain into overdrive and creating a feedback loop of worry. If you are on antidepressants, talk to your doctor and together look for ways to find positivity in your life. Doctors are trying to help, and in a lot of situations, Prozac may be the, well be the best answer, but my feeling is that doctors are reaching for the prescription pad a little bit too quickly. When researching depression for this book, I discovered that the demographic with the highest rate of depression was women aged 40 to 59, with approximately one in eight women diagnosed with depression. This, is, this statistic really concerned me. Most of the women I care about are in this demographic, which means that I likely know a few who are dealing with, with the problems of depression. I decided to look into why many fantastic women become depressed with the onset of middle age. I conducted a little impromptu survey, and these responses ranged from past a certain age will women feel invisible, or I feel like I'm not needed or appreciated anymore. From the moment little boys are toddlers, we tell them that they are strong, and we tell little girls that they're beautiful. Being beautiful is wrongly ingrained into women as a measure of their self-worth. Botox, wrinkle creams and bolt-on boobs have become billion-dollar industries and are all part of the business of staying beautiful. Time waits for no one, except maybe Christy Brinkley, and we're all going to get older. And for many women, the departing youth also signals the departure of their pride and self-worth. Here's a quote from the Chicago Tribune. Enjoy the power and beauty of your youth. Never mind. 
You will never understand the power of the beauty of your youth until they've faded. But trust me, in 20 years from now, you'll look back at photos of yourself and recall in a way you can't grasp now how much possibility lay before you and how fabulous you really looked. You might recognize that that from the sunscreen song. Being a mother is a demanding job. You put your former priorities on hold to welcome into the world a demanding, pooping, vomiting bundle of joy. So much of a mum's day goes into looking after others. There are fantastic milestones like first steps and starting school, and all along the way, mums are there to help and nurture their child. Being a mum is the most overworked, underpaid job there is, but being mum is, a mum is also the, one of the most rewarding jobs in the world. When we look at stress, having a child tops the list for both good and bad stress. If you're trying to avoid stress, you would never have a kid. No fucking way. The little bastards are a constant source of grief. But here's the deal. Ask any parent what's the best day of their life, and the answer will almost exclusively come back the day their kids were born. Mums understand the importance of their job, and they take it really seriously. It doesn't matter if you're a full-time mum or the CEO of a multinational company. The role of being a parent will be a very important part of your life and, at least in part, define your opinion of yourself. Whether you like it or not, how well you do in your role as a parent will have a big impact on how much pride from inside you experience. With serotonin being a major factor in the well-being and mood, it makes sense that mums are susceptible to big fluctuations in happiness. My sister expresses it this way, mums can only be as happy as their unhappiest child. That is putting a lot of your your well-being in the hands of someone else. So why are so many women in their 40s and 50s lacking the pride from inside and falling into a black hole of depression? To investigate this phenomenon, we're going to look at the last two decades of two women in this age group. The first is Michelle. Michelle and Jason met at university and fell in love instantly. They were both young and beautiful and ready to change the world. She finished her environmental science degree and started work with a not-for-profit that was dedicated to removing plastics from the ocean. Jason's law degree, along with a bit of a help from his dad, secured him a great job at a local firm and a five-year plan to become a partner was well underway. The two married and the kids soon followed. For Michelle, saving the world would have to wait. She had two kids under two and her environmental impact didn't even go as far as boycotting disposable nappies. Jason made partner and the four of them moved into a nice house near good schools. Things were going great. She looked after the kids, made healthy lunches, helped with the school's swim team and volunteered at the tuck shop on Thursdays. Her sense of self-worth came from serving others. She was a great mum. The kids loved her and she never put herself first. That would be selfish. Jason was really busy at work and rarely got home in time to eat with her and the kids. Business was growing, going great and although time was scarce, he always managed golf on Saturdays. Life for Jason and Michelle was going according to plan. Fast forward 15 years, Jason is now a senior partner playing in corporate golf days and the family has moved into a bigger house near even better schools. The kids are about to leave school and like most teenagers, they only communicate with mum via grunts and requests for money. They have their own car now, so mum's taxi services aren't even needed anymore. 
Michelle's days are filled with housework and the occasional trip to the gym or the beauty salon. At 40, the greys are coming faster and Botox appears to be the only way to maintain the beauty of her youth. She can't move the face muscles anymore, but at least she doesn't have wrinkles. Getting a job is an option, but her degree is next to useless now and who would want to hire someone who hasn't worked for over a decade? She doesn't need the money, so why would she go through the stress and anxiety of learning new skills and trying to get a job? She would be starting at the bottom as well. She has tried to talk Jason into a romantic trip to Italy, but he's not interested. Between work, golf and his mates, Jason's life is pretty full. Michelle has put all her time into looking after the kids and Jason has found joy elsewhere. Their relationship is now one of convenience rather than one of shared interests, mutual respect and affection. It all hit home recently at her 40th birthday. Jason's speech was not one filled with love and affection for his wife, but was more the type of speech the senior partner would give to a staff member. He actually said that her best work was ahead of her. Michelle was becoming the one in eight people in her demographic with depression. She found it hard to get excited about the things she used to love doing. She was putting on weight, and the more she looked at her life, the fatter and sadder she got. The big house and the Mercedes were not doing it for her anymore. If you have everything and you're still sad, having everything just makes depression worse. Understanding serotonin, choosing to be happy, and changing your outlook may look like one option to consider. The Harvard positive psychologist, Shauna Kaur, outlines a 21-day happiness advantage program. For 21 days, you need to journal three things that you're grateful for and perform one act of kindness. My staff did this and they emailed me every day for 21 days. The journey was amazing. To start with, responses were along the lines of, I'm grateful for Nutella and sunny days. After a week or so, people began really looking for positives in their life and the acts of kindness were fantastic. My favourite act of kindness was when Jasmine put a post-it on the back of the toilet door in the public bathroom. She wrote the words, you're beautiful on it. When she came back later, someone had written, so are you. The message was right. They are both beautiful women, and both had the pride from inside that comes with doing something nice. Jen. Jenny Elkhorn is a 56-year-old former world duathlon champion. Every morning she gets up, usually before dawn, and meets up to train and coach members of her Surface Paradise Triathlon Club. She has a body hardened from years of swimming, cycling, and running. She has muscular thighs from years on the bike, six-pack abs of steel, and wiry arms that would make me think twice about an arm wrestle. Her blonde hair, now more platinum, bounces behind her as she runs along the beachfront. Jenny loves her life. She loves training. She loves her role, developing promising juniors to become future champions. She even loves watching mammals, middle-aged men in lycra, like me, achieve their goals of dropping a few kilos. Jenny is one very content, rounded, beautiful and happy human. Always the athlete, Jenny started her sporting career as a hockey player. Her father was on the Australian hockey team and she spent her weekends at the hockey field with a cut-down hockey stick, honing her skills. By the time she was old enough to join the team, she already had the skills and the fitness to excel at her chosen sport. She quickly made the state team as a junior and always enjoyed the bonds that existed from being part of a team. When I asked Jenny if she was a star at hockey, her answer was typical Jenny. Uh, I wasn't fantastic, but I was always good at setting up other people. 
Jenny's a team player. In her 20s, she was on the verge of making the national team but was very young and by her own admission didn't handle the stress of being at the pinnacle of her sport. She went back to her state team where once again she was confident, competent and the glue that kept her team together. She was the team masseuse and if I know Jen, she looked after everyone. Some friends from the gym convinced her to start cycling and then swimming and before she knew it, she was doing triathlons. Pretty soon, Jen had turned into an elite triathlete. She was a female winner of the ITU Duathlon World Championships in 1902 and spent a lot of the early 90s travelling the world as a professional athlete. When competing as a professional was no longer an option, she started the Surface Paradise Triathlon Club. Since starting SPTC, Jen has trained champion athletes like Olympians Emma Snosel, the 2008 gold medalist, and Ashley Gentle, and has also helped countless others achieve their triathlon and fitness goals. In 2014, she decided to embark on a massive challenge. Together with six other members of the triathlon club, she decided to climb Everest. She was going to compete in an Ironman triathlon. These gruelling events are held all over the world and consist of a 3.8-kilometre swim, a 180-kilometre ride, followed by a full marathon. Yep, all 42 k's of it. The goal of anyone who does an Ironman is to get to Kona in Hawaii. To triathletes, Kona is like Wimbledon or the Olympics. It's the ultimate. To get invited to Kona, you must place in the top two of a qualifying Ironman event. Jen and her triathlon club teammates set their Ironman sights on Bustleton, a sleepy seaside town three hours south of Perth. She did the work, sorted out all the nutrition for the race, and had a game plan in her head. She started the swim on the far left of the pack and had clear water all the way to the turn. After finishing the swim, she made a quick transition onto the bike and was away. The fluctuating winds made the cycle difficult, but she was still on track. Towards the end of the cycle, she started getting some pains in her feet, and coming off the bike and starting the run, she was in agony. She willed herself to keep going. About five kilometres in, she stopped for a bathroom break, quickly took off her shoes and gave her feet a massage. This got the blood flowing and her feet were good to go again. As the run continued, she passed several of the boys from the Surface Paradise Triathlon Club. Some of them were really struggling, and despite having been on the road for over nine hours, Jen still mustered up the energy to give them a pep talk and some encouragement. Ten and a half hours after starting the race with a swim, Jenny crossed the finish line. She was an Iron Man. Completely spent, she celebrated the joy that comes with a job well done. She won her age group by over 40 minutes and was placed among the top three competitors in age groups 15 years younger. She was going to Kona. The Kona training had some injury hiccups, but she was back on track until July 2015. After doing a 100-kilometre ride with her Sunday morning squad, Jen decided to do an extra 20 kilometres on her own. She was practising getting down on her profile bars. The profile bars make a cyclist more aerodynamic, but they sacrifice an element of control. Riders generally only use their profile bars when the road is straight and there's no need for braking. In an Ironman event, it's vital to have your nutrition and hydration plans sorted. Jen, while putting food back into her back pocket, lost some of her usual concentration. She swerved to miss a block of wood on the road, lost control of the bike, and crashed into the back of a stationary SUV. 
She was doing 35 kilometers an hour. Numerous x-rays and MRIs confirmed what she already knew. She was busted up. Three broken ribs, a fractured collarbone, wrist broken in three places, and a few broken fingers. Within, with 10 weeks to go, it seemed her Kona dream was over. Two days later, though, Jen had borrowed a recumbent stationary bike parked it in front of the TV and was doing several hours a day in a vain attempt to keep her dream alive. Fortunately, sanity prevailed and after listening to doctors and her friends, she officially pulled the pin on the big race. A horrific injury like this, particularly to an elite athlete, can cause people to turn into a spiral of depression. This didn't happen to Jen, even though she was in her 50s and knew that time was running out to achieve another dream. Why was Jen so resilient and able to cope so well with this terrible setback? I believe Jen's ability to cope with her setback can be credited to her social reward system and the caveman yearning to be part of a tribe. Although the triathlon is an individual sport, most of the training is done in larger groups. Let's look at our caveman reward system for triathlon training. All training sessions have a goal in mind. You swim a certain number of laps, ride to the top of a particular hill, or run a certain number of Ks. All these goals elicit a drive-to-thrive dopamine response that keeps you going and gets you to the finish line. Endorphins help mask the physical pain, while dopamine helps you stay focused on achieving your goal. It feels great to rest your legs after a training session, and most of that sense of satisfaction comes from a natural release of dopamine. If all of these endorphins and dopamine feel so wonderful, why is it that it always feels better to train in a group? The answer is your pride from inside chemical serotonin. Serotonin is what makes you keep going when your legs feel like jelly. Pride in yourself is a great feeling, but that is not where serotonin ends. The extraordinary thing about serotonin is you get the exact same reward from witnessing people in your tribe achieving their goals. It is a cumulative release of chemicals that is responsible for the power of group training. Jen is the coach, strategist, and motivators for the entire triathlon club. The fact that she is now injured was disappointing, but it didn't have the devastating effect that it often has when elite athletes have their dreams shattered. For most athletes, their sporting prowess is what provides their sense of self-worth. They feel pride in themselves based predominantly on their ability to excel in their chosen sport. For Jen, her exceptional ability as a triathlete is only a small part of where her sense of self-worth and pride comes from. A large percentage of her serotonin or pride comes from watching her squad members achieve their goals. She has a big part to play in other people's success and is this sense of contribution that kept Jen positive when she was unable to train and to fulfill her dream. 12 months after the disappointment of her 2015 crash, Jen got another chance to compete at Kona, and in true Jenny Elkhorn spirit, she ground out another win, and at the age of 57, she was once again a world champion. Her entire tribe was delighted. Jen is objectively flourishing because she has eudaimonia. She is stressed Teflon. Fortunately, you don't have to do anything as ridiculously crazy as an Ironman to get those same feelings. Find new ways to contribute, find new ways to be a bigger part of your tribe and do something that gives you pride from inside. Helping other people and doing something selfless will help. I'll give you another example. My big sister Jenny has five degrees. She's a university lecturer and is a really smart and overall brave woman. 
At the age of 48, Jeff, Jenny left her job as a teacher and decided to pursue a law degree. Imagine going into a class and being the same agent as everyone else's mum. She did it and she smashed it, graduating near the top of her class and eventually coming back to the university as a lecturer. I'm massively proud of her achievements and often brag with great pride about how smart my big sister is. These things, however, don't really do it for Jenny. These sorts of achievements aren't where she gets her pride from inside. A while ago, she discovered an organisation called Orange Sky Laundry. Founded by two young guys in their early 20s, Orange Sky have a fleet of vans that are fitted out with washing machines and dryers, and they do laundry for homeless people. Jenny coordinates the the local Orange Sky service, and with the help of over 50 volunteers, she gives dignity to people who are struggling. She doesn't get paid for it, and she is routinely up at 5am to collect bubbles, the name of the laundry van, to do some washing for people who live on the margins of our society. How many people would get up at 5am for free like Jenny does? Andrew Tobias once said that there was no such thing as true altruism. He may be right. She may not admit it, but the reason Jenny does it is biological. It feels good to help others, and it feels good to make a positive difference in the world. Kronk and his ancestors survive because they have pride from inside carrots. They make us stick together, and they make us feel good to help people in our tribe. Altruism is when you look after other people's welfare without getting anything in return. Even though you you want to help others, you always get something in return. Evolution and the need to be part of a tribe ensure that it feels good to do things that make your tribe stronger. For Jen, Jenny and Kronk, just achieving their personal goals was not enough. They needed to know they they had contributed to their team, tribe, pack or community, however you want to define it, to attain true joy from their efforts. And like them, if you are to achieve lasting happiness, pride and well-being, you have to help others along the way. A journey travelled solely for yourself will quite literally only end in misery. I'm going to finish this chapter with one final thought. Is the world a better place because you're in it? If the answer's no, think harder. If the answer's still no, do something positive and contribute. Chapter 10. A look in the room of mirrors. Foundation 3. Honest self-awareness. Use honest, rational thoughts to improve your weaknesses, accept your faults, and develop an improvement mindset. Progrestination. By now we know that integrating our two brains is important and that eudaimonia can only be achieved by understanding what you are thinking and why you are thinking it and asking whether or not it's helping. This brings us to the final piece of the stress Teflon puzzle, honest self-awareness. Most of us are familiar with how procrastination works. We've all put things off until a deadline draws close and panic sets in before we finally get them done. Whether studying for an exam, taking the rubbish out, or filing a report for your boss, we all know the dynamics of procrastination. We put off doing things that are important in favour of watching reruns of Friends on TV or surfing YouTube for silly animal videos. Procrastination always makes us feel a little bit guilty and a little bit disappointed in ourselves, but we do it anyway. Sometimes it's an attempt to avoid the stress and pressure of our responsibilities, and it's sometimes simply that we'd rather do something else. So we just do that. 
Let me introduce you to procrastination's slightly better looking, guilt minimizing second cousin, procrastination. Procrastination is something that appears to be positive, productive, and somewhat important, but in reality is taking your time and attention off your most important goals. It doesn't come with procrastination's guilt or disappointment because you are actually doing something positive. Procrastinating has some stress associated with it and a small dint to pride. No one has a desire to be lazy. You don't want to go to bed at night thinking, that was great, I'm really glad I sat on the couch and ate a box of cookies. Because procrastinating involves doing something positive, we save ourselves the guilt trip and still feel okay about ourselves. Hey, at least I got my sock drawer sorted out now that I can get dressed faster and accomplish loads more tomorrow. That's harmless enough, isn't it? Well, if you want to plod through life and live a safe and easy existence, then yeah, it's harmless enough. But if you're looking for eudaimonia, that objective flourishing from doing good things, this type of life often lacks passion and fulfillment and eventually leave you feeling empty. Procrastination then can be described as procrastination for your dreams. Like all human reward systems, dopamine, your drive to thrive hormone, gives you a little feel-good chemical hit every time you do something positive. The systems ensure we continue to do things that are in our best interest. With procrastination, you get the feel-good hit just by ticking things off your list. This list may be things that need to be done, but are they getting you any closer to your dream? If you have an inner drive to do something remarkable, something that will light a fire of contentment and self-satisfaction, my company uses the term BHAG, Big Hairy Audacious Goal. I actually prefer, prefer BHAD, which contrary to how it sounds, isn't a Baghdad kebab vendor. It means Big Hairy Audacious Dream. By dream, I don't mean unachievable fantasy. It still needs to be realistic, but a dream is limitless has no end point, and allows your imagination to run free. Martin Luther King's speech on Washington wouldn't have been anywhere near as good if you used the words, I have a goal. Goals are important when we look at sales figures, weight loss, or grades at school. Goals fire up our drive to thrive hormone, which are really effective in getting things done. The only problem is, as soon as we achieve them, we move the goalposts and need bigger sales targets or even better grades. Dreams, on the other hand, combine both your personal and social reward systems. You need both to achieve balance. Your BHAD is something that will make your world a better place and fire up your pride from inside hormone system. You don't even have to come up with your own BHAD. You can join a tribe and share theirs. Look at Jenny and Orange Sky Laundry. She bought into their dream of bringing dignity to homeless people. She did something positive, saw a need, and decided to contribute. To achieve your BHAD, you have to be conscious of procrastination. I really wanted to write a book. I knew it would take a lot of research, and so I researched and researched. Eventually, I'd done so much research that if I was going to include everything I'd learned, the book would have looked more like war and peace. My research was my way of procrastinating and not actually writing the book. I lacked the belief that I could actually write an entire book, and I'm glad you've got this far because it shows that I've actually done it. This is an example of my not buying into my BHAD. Self-doubt causes procrastination and dreams don't get fulfilled. Lacking self-belief is what makes you procrastinate. Sometimes your big, hairy, audacious dream seems too big and daunting that you don't know 
where to start. Businesses all over the world have sales targets, but do they have dreams? Do, do the employees who fully buy into those dreams? The author Seth Godin coined a term to describe something similar. He called it sheepwalking. Businesses, as you may know, are filled with sheepwalkers. I'll let Seth define the term. I define sheepwalking as an outcome of hiring people who have been raised to be obedient and giving them a brain-dead job and just enough fear to keep them in line. How many people are sheepwalking through their workday? Do you ever think that there might be a better way? Have you ever said, what if management did this? If you have asked these questions to yourself and done nothing about them, then you are sheepwalking and procrastinating. How do we catch ourselves procrastinating? That's easy. Just look for the warning signs. You have to have a clear idea of what your big, hairy, audacious dream is. What do you want? If you have a BHAD, you have no deadline for achieving it. Without a deadline, you never get a sense of urgency that fires you up to get shit done. Dreams have little goals and little deadlines all along the way. You tell yourself why your dream won't work before it has a chance to get off the ground. You get easily distracted and only complete the small here and now task. Multitasking is a great way to keep procrastinating. You tick off the easy to do tasks off your list while the bigger, harder tasks remain untouched. And finally, you have a fear of failure or even scarier, a fear of success. Succeeding at your big dream will change the status quo and move you out of your comfort zone. Is that scary for you? So how do we stop procrastinating? Well, the first step is to work out what you want. What is your BHAD and how will your life be better if you achieve it? You need to positively brainstorm this. By this, I mean you have to write down all the positive things that can happen if you achieve your big, hairy, audacious dream. Any negative thoughts that come into your mind need to be quickly put aside. A positive brainstorm will paint a very attractive picture of your goal. You aren't living in dreamland. Problems and obstacles will always be present, but this is not the time to let them into the brainstorming process. Take the time to follow these few steps and see how your life changes. First one, share your BHAD. Tell people that you're going to run a marathon in June is a great way to commit to your goals. Publicly committing to your dream has two positives. One, you are saying your commitments out loud, thus reinforcing it. And two, it's easy to disappoint yourself with an action, but it's much harder to disappoint others you have recruited into your dream. A training pal will make marathon training much more enjoyable and spark your pride from inside social reward systems. Start. It sounds obvious, but as the Chinese proverb said, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. My father-in-law ran 24 marathons. He started in his early 40s and began training by doing laps of the local basketball court. Start and start now. Identify the cost of inaction. What happens if I stay unfit? What happens if I stay in this job that makes me miserable? Will that make me happy? Will that improve my mood, relationships or lifestyle? If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. And remove, finally, remove the barriers. Often there are two competing priorities and one will stop you from achieving the other. By asking yourself, what am I thinking? Why am I thinking it? And is it helping? You can often identify these competing issues and find a way for them to work together. 
Time with family and exercise may be competing priorities, but there are always ways you can get the two to overlap and help everyone. Kronk lived in the here and now. We are programmed to take more notice of the here and now. A clear vision of your big, hairy, audacious dream will help you see what is possible and illuminate a path to getting there. Progrestination is sneaky. You've got to identify it and stop it now. The self-deception bubble. Why smart people do dumb things. I have a bunch of mates I've known for 30 years, intelligent, educated guys who are physically active and generally pretty health conscious. And yet, until recently, a stunningly stupid proportion of them were committed smokers. I couldn't understand it. How could these guys in their 20s and 30s who didn't, who liked nothing better than surfing all morning were willing to suck down expensive poison that was not only going to shorten their lives but probably make it harder to surf and do the things they enjoy? They were exposed to all the information detailing how bad smoking is. They considered themselves rational people and yet they continued to smoke. Why do smart people do dumb things? Cognitive dissonance is a psychological state we find ourselves in when we're faced with conflicting ideas, be it beliefs, behaviours or information. Our brains hate contradiction and strive for internal consistency. I'm a smart person who smokes and all these doctors say smoking is terrible. I'm overweight and pre-diabetic and yet I keep guzzling soft drinks and downing burgers. These all induced cognitive dissonance and we find mentally uncomfortable even stressful and our brains are extremely motivated to get rid of it this sounds like a good thing we need to seek consistency in our beliefs and our perception if our behavior conflicts with our beliefs and our belief conflicts with a new piece of evidence or information then we should do something about it but there's a problem with how we deal with this sort of dissonance and it comes back to the old brain Reducing dissonance is quick, unconscious, and automatic, and it takes almost no effort. It sounds like classic old brain behavior. That means it's based on simple rules, not very nuanced and a bit lazy. As always, the old brain, although great at keeping us alive, doesn't deal particularly well with complex issues we encounter in the modern world. When faced with information that conflicts with our beliefs or behaviors, there are a few things the new brain can do to try and remedy the situation. Ideally, if the information is good, we should probably change our beliefs or behaviours to fit in what we now know, i.e. stop smoking because it's bad for you. Unfortunately, this doesn't always or even often happen. We could also justify our beliefs or behaviours in the face of conflicting information by adding new thoughts or belief. Everyone dies of something. I exercise more than most people. I deserve at least one vice. Or we can just ignore, deny, or downplay the information that conflicts with our belief or behavior. Who cares? Scientists say everything gives you cancer. I had an uncle who smoked and drank and lived to be 100. Dissonance is particularly uncomfortable when our central or core beliefs are challenged. We aren't generally bothered by a bad review of a movie we thought was good, but when it comes to things like, I'm smart but I smoke, or I'm an honest person and I cheated on a test, or I'm a good person and I failed to help someone out, these things cause problems. It is far easier to reassess your view of an external information, then reassess your opinion of yourself. So discomfort is usually resolved by devaluing or discarding 
a conflicting piece of knowledge or by justifying your behavior. Even worse, the more heavily you're invested in a position, the greater lengths you'll go to to keep it or justify it, which is why people who have tried to quit smoking and failed will downplay the dangers more than people who haven't even tried to quit. Once you understand cognitive dissonance, your need to reduce and how your, your old brain does this, you start seeing it everywhere. Ever wonder why hammering a climate skeptic with facts and figures and pointing out why their argument is ridiculous never changes his mind? Instead of his thanking you for, the, for showing him the light, your suggestion that he is stupid forces his old brain to reduce dissonance the only way he knows how, by making him dig in his heels even further and devalue your argument as a product of a grand conspiracy orchestrated by the UN in collaboration with the hippies. In the 1950s, some researchers were thinking about initiation challenges and were wondering why people would do difficult and humiliating things in order to join a club filled with people who would make them do difficult and humiliating things. So they conducted an experiment. Two groups of people had to perform some tasks before they were allowed into a discussion group that was going to talk about sex. This was the 1950s, so talking about sex was a pretty exciting prospect. One group had a trivial task to perform, while the other had to do something a bit difficult and a bit embarrassing. The kicker was once they had performed the entry task, instead of a salacious sex chat, they got a dry academic discussion about the reproductive behaviours of animals in a group of not very nice people. So who was more annoyed at joining the lab group? Contrary to what most people would expect, the group who had to do something embarrassing was less annoyed, and instead of feeling ripped off, the members commented that the discussion was actually pretty interesting and the group as a whole seemed really nice. Rather than feel stupid, these people preferred to justify doing something embarrassing by claiming it was worth it. We make up rationalisations to make us feel less stupid. Before making a decision like buying a car, we are at our most open to information, painstakingly researching and comparing options and alternatives. But because we make our decision and buy our car, but once we make our decision and buy our car, we are mentally committed and things change drastically. From now on, we forget all about the bad points of our car and the good points of the alternatives. Any new information we see that supports what a great decision we made will jump out at us, and anything that suggests otherwise will simply be ignored or downplayed. Our drive for post-decision justification is so immense that even betters at the racetrack have shown to be more confident in their chosen horse after they have put the bet on. Students judge cheating less harshly after they have been induced to cheat on a test, and investors throw good money after bad investments time and time again when they should simply cut their losses and walk away. So why on earth has evolution thrust a hopeless system on us? Well, those old brain approaches aren't always bad, particularly in the context of a simpler world like Kronk's. For instance, having a stable belief system is a good thing. It often does the thinking for us, making life a little more streamlined and a little easier, and our beliefs can help bind us to our community. This is the reason why religion is such a great big part of the human existence. Letting religion dictate what's right and wrong is easier than weighing things up for yourself. 
you don't want to be constantly questioning everything you do, everything you believe in, or you'll go mad. Also, being happy with our decisions is an important coping skill. So long as things work out reasonably well most of the time, you don't want to lie awake at night obsessing whether, whether or not you're always doing the right thing. We need systems that make the world manageable. But like so many of our problems, it is dealing with the complexities of a modern world that our automatic systems struggle. And we have this rational new brain sitting, on, sitting there just waiting to get involved. We, we can have the best of both worlds by letting our old brain do its thing you can't stop it anyway. And then learning to use the new brain to act as a supervisor, keeping things in check and taking over when it needs to. Just knowing about co- cognitive dissonance is a start. Once you know about something like this, you will quickly start seeing it and then you can do something about it. And it doesn't take much rather than mindlessly justifying a negative behavior in order to protect your self-belief or self-esteem, you simply need to consciously rationalize why changing your behavior or questioning your beliefs is not only okay, but good. This kind of change is growth and growth is good. It's okay to be wrong sometimes, even on real core things. I can make mistakes and still be smart, nice, kind person. In fact, I'm so together that when the facts change, I change my position and I'm grateful for it. I'm not simply losing a belief, but gaining a better one. And that will be more useful and more helpful and make me smarter. Finally, remember, remember dissonance when dealing with other people. If you make people feel stupid, they'll not thank you for it. They will dig in their heels and resist even more rational, logical points of view backed up with tons of evidence. Most of the time, as with anything, we're lazy and we take the path of least resistance. Changing our actions is hard, particularly if we have an addiction to something like smoking. Change is the best resolution to cognitive dissonance, and yet it's the one we use the least. Dealing with cognitive dissonance is the easy way puts us in the self-deception bubble, which is a little place we live when we'd rather lie to ourselves than change a particular behaviour or attitude. It's where we justify and rationalize. It's where the rules don't apply to me and we do it all the time. I do it all the time with food. I'm one of those people that do heaps of exercise but don't lose any weight. As the old saying goes, you can't outrun a bad diet. I love food. I love drinking beer. Chips on the table, I'm going to smash them. Some candies in a bowl, not after I leave the room. I know I shouldn't and I know I should eat better. And I know eating is the reason I'm not losing weight as well as I should. I rationalize it by telling myself I'll go to the gym and the next day and because it's Friday and I'll start my diet on Monday. By halfway through Tuesday though, I'll be eating pies and mowing down burgers. I'm rationalizing justifying my bad choices in my head so I don't feel bad about them. But who am I kidding? One of the best ways to not kid yourself anymore is to actually be aware that you're putting yourself in a bubble and own it. Yeah, I'm doing this. No, I'm not going to have that. And no, I'm not going to kid myself about it. Yes, being fitter and healthier is really important to me and I'm not going to eat that packet of cookies. It's more of a key to willpower than just abstaining. And just being aware that you're doing it is the first step towards changing your habits. It's a bit like getting to that fork in the stress road. You've got to be aware at the point at which you're going down that I'm out of control road because the moment you become aware that you're in the self-deception bubble is the moment that the bubble bubble pops. This bubble is actually quite easy to pop with honesty and by integrating your old and new brains. 
You pop it by going back to those questions we've repeated the whole way through. What am I thinking? Why am I thinking it? And is it helping? As soon as we start deceiving ourselves, other people have to rationalize our actions as well as our own. Eventually, they demonize one another and sends the culture of any relationship, personal or professional, down the toilet. One of the things that great leaders do is they avoid self-defeat. They know exactly what their good points are and they accept their bad points. They admit their failures and they admit the things that they're bad at. They allow themselves to be human and people will follow them because of their honesty and they're treating everyone else as equals. Because great leaders don't live in the self-deception bubble, they aren't so preoccupied with themselves. That allows them to go after people on their team and find out what they can do to help them, not treat them as objects that will get them where they want to go. If you're going to be a good leader, you're going to need positive relationships with people, which means that you'll need to accept their good bits and their bad bits. If people know that even their bad bits are being embraced, they'll actually do their best to improve their flaws. But the self-deception bubble isn't just found in the workplace. Once it takes root, it can become part of every part of your life. I'll prove it to you. Let's pretend it's 3am and you've just woken up to your baby crying. You have two choices. One is to get up and sort the baby out, feed it or change its nappy or whatever has to be done. The other is to lie there and wait for your partner to get up and do it. You have two choices, your cronk instinct or your primal instinct and your selfish one. Your primal instinct is to get up and help the baby while your selfish instinct is to rep the rest up for the busy day ahead of you. The only thing that's going to stop your primal instinct is if you you start justifying and rationalizing your selfish one. I have to get up early to go to work. My spouse doesn't have to go to work, so I'll let her get up and do it. What you're really telling yourself is that you're more important than she is. As soon as you start saying that sort of thing, you're you're again putting yourself in the self-deception bubble. We'll find these justifications and rationalizations going on in our head all the time. They stop us from doing the right thing, the primal thing, and they help that help us contribute to the tribe. The key to popping that self-deception bubble is to being aware of yourself and to catch yourself when you're making those excuses and not following what your true instincts are. That's when you're putting yourself back in the bubble in which only you matter. What would the better version of you do? A few years ago, we had a holiday home by the beach and we tried virtually everything but couldn't get grass to grow in the backyard. It was just too shady and sandy, so I decided we needed a deck and proceeded to Google search how to build a deck and I was going to build it by myself. My wife was generally scared. We've established my poor DIY record and she was convinced that I would sever a limb or build a deck that would collapse. This time was going to be different, I thought. It was November and I decided to grow a moustache and raise some money for men's health. I looked like a Colombian drug dealer and everyone started calling me Carlos. I loved it. I had an alter ego and Carlos was great. Luke is useless at DIY, but if you needed a deck built, Carlos is your man. The deck took about three days to build and when it was finished, we all sat on it, cracked a beer and toasted what a great job Carlos has done. Carlos is the slightly better well, significantly better version of me. Recently, in an attempt to link my old and new brains, I began asking myself, what would Carlos do? 
Asking my new brain what Carlos would do is a great way to ensure that your brain's supervisor is doing its job. Would Carlos be lazy and not go to the gym? No way. Would Carlos be brave and make the tough decision at work? Of course he would. Would Carlos put washing on the line and help out around the house? Absolutely. Choosing to be the better version of yourself is a conscious decision to keep improving. That was a quote from Carlos. The better version of yourself will not rationalize poor decisions. The better version of yourself will do the difficult task at hand and not procrastinate. The better version of yourself is authentic and thoughtful and has honest self-awareness. It's this awareness that is the final piece of the stress Teflon puzzle. We aren't always the best version of ourselves, but it's really important that we always try to be. Conclusion. Then you begin to make it better. The Beatles. What does it look like when you put all of the elements of this book together? A stressed Teflon life looks a lot like my mate Adam's experience in overcoming his own trials and tribulations. Adam Hudson is someone who is objectively flourishing. He's an entrepreneur in every sense of the word. The five companies he owns make millions of dollars and do wonderful things to improve people's lives all over the world. He has a strong tribe and helps other people to become more successful. His great contributions to others fill him with pride, but he also has a sense of honesty and self-awareness that helps him embrace his good parts as well as accepting his weaknesses. Adam has achieved eudaimonia. Adam has a great life, but he's had to work hard for it. He has navigated the fork in the stress road before, so he knows how to take the good road when he meets the crossroads. A few years ago, however, this wasn't the case, and he found himself on a dangerous path towards self-destruction that could have taken his life. Adam began his adult life in Browns Plains, a working-class outer suburb of Brisbane. His first job earned him $183 a week working in a one-hour photo shop. He took a job as a door-to-door salesman with Kirby vacuum cleaners. That was his first exposure into sales, and next was the world of personal development books and speakers. That's where he started to change after his managers told him to listen to Zig Ziglar and Jim Rowan motivational tapes and read Anthony Robbins' books. His first successful business was selling personal development courses for an American company. He started part-time, keeping his full-time job, and by the age of 23, he left his full-time job and focused on his new sales company, which eventually had hundreds of distributors working for him all around Australia. He sold that company at the age of 25, and then he has owned 17 different companies, including a hair salon in Sydney, a flight simulator in Los Angeles, a finance company that went public on the stock exchange, and an animation studio in Hollywood that he sold in 2015. He now has a large business helping other people sell products on Amazon. Everything changed a few years ago when Adam walked out of his his office in Los Angeles and started to feel a bit dizzy and weak in the knees. I'm not feeling too good, he said to his colleague. The next thing he knew, he was waking up in the back of an ambulance on a way to the hospital. A barrage of tests concluded that physically he was fine, but a severe panic attack had simply shut down his entire body, causing him to pass out without warning. No way, he was Superman. The man was, man was bulletproof to stress, or so he thought. His body had decided otherwise. 
As we talked about in Chapter 5, Adam's body turned off the things that weren't essential. In his case, that meant virtually everything. It was the kind of rebooting issued by his brain that gave Adam the kick up the arse that he needed. He went to Bali and spent two months surfing, doing yoga, and learning to meditate. He learned how to link his old and new brains and discovered the self-awareness needed to juggle all the balls he had in the air. He unpacked his life and realised why he was exhausted. The penny drop moment for Adam came when he was asked to tell about a time he'd experienced pure joy. He took three or four minutes to think of one. It took a while longer for him to make a list of things in his life that brought him joy and a list of things he did in his everyday day-to-day life. When he looked at the two lists, there was almost no overlap. Things had to change. Making lists, asking hard questions, and having a good, hard look at ourselves in the room of mirrors, so to speak, creates a mind awareness we need to connect our two brains. By connecting to gratitude and answering the three most important questions when dealing with stress, what am I thinking, why am I thinking it, and is it helping? Adam managed to find more joy in his life and while still pursuing the goals that gave him the great pride from inside. Just how far Adam had come became apparent recently when Amazon announced change in a policy that rendered one of his companies obsolete overnight. His business, I Love to Review, was a highly profitable multi-million dollar company that provided reviews for products on Amazon. By changing the rules regarding reviews, Amazon made Adam's company and its staff and contributors completely redundant, costing him a fortune in lost revenue. That's really stressful. Adam had other companies, and financially he was still safe, but a blow like that could easily cripple a person mentally and cause another stress overload. It didn't. Adam was disappointed. His situation was far from ideal, he thought, but his newly developed awareness gave him the skills to ride it out, and the stress didn't stick. His main concern was not for himself, but of the staff he employed at I Love to Review. They are all talented, and we will all help them get other jobs, he explained. They are all just sad that they won't get to come to work in a great place. Adam had developed a culture that made his people feel safe and appreciated. They were part of his tribe, and that's what the staff and Adam were going to miss. Adam has fast cars, the big house, and the great boat. Those things are toys and are byproducts of being successful. They're not the reason he does what he does. They aren't Adam's BHAT, which is to develop a community where people are safe and thrive together, a tribe where people help each other to do things that give them pride from inside, a place where tend and befriend is more important than fight or flight. And today, Adam is healthy and and thriving, both in business and in spirit. He connects his body and mind with yoga and mind awareness, which has helped him stay mindful of how he ticks, what to seek out in his life and work and what to avoid. He may have a lot of stress in his life, but it doesn't stick. It doesn't weigh him down and it doesn't chip away at his health, wealth or spirit. And that's what Stress Teflon is all about. You don't need to be an international entrepreneur or have multiple businesses to become Stress Teflon. Take Bill, for example. At 55 years old, Bill is unemployed, he has no family and lives in government housing. He struggles to put up with other people's bullshit, as he calls it, and makes and it makes keeping job a job really difficult. 
Surviving on unemployment benefits, he doesn't have much money or a flashy car, but he is stressed Teflon. Bill is a busy man. He works in a soup kitchen every morning and cooks sausages at the local hardware store to make money for the soup kitchen. He spends three nights a week volunteering at the local merry-go-round, helping kids onto and taking their $1 donation to raise money for the local Rotary Club. Bill has a tribe. He has great self-awareness and he contributes. His days are dedicated to others. He may not be pretty or rich, and he definitely doesn't have the political correctness of modern society, but Bill loves being Bill. Choosing to be happy, practicing mind awareness, and contributing to your tribe all cost nothing, but they all add to your positivity and help you put the stresses of the modern world into perspective. Understanding fear, connecting your old and new brains, and understanding where your stress originates are the keys to putting things into perspective. Catching yourself what-ifing and developing self-awareness will ensure you go down the positive stress road. By striving to be the better version of yourself and contributing to your tribe, you will get your pride from inside. So, I say it again, that stress is not the enemy. Embrace the good stress and let the toxic stress slide off. Once you do, you will find the objective flourishing of eudaimonia and become stress Teflon. And no matter who you are, It's good being you when you're stressed, Teflon.